Hello, hello, hello. This is the Shiny Happy People podcast and I'm Vinay, your host. Welcome back to all our new listeners. Welcome to our interview episode. Thank you for tuning in. And for all our regular listeners. Hi there. Welcome back. Okay, today we are going to talk to someone who describes himself as half adventure, half transformational coach and a half bear dancer. Now, in case you're wondering how that three halves become a full, I have no idea. But what I love is bear dancer. Okay, so we're going to hear more about what that means. Stay tuned. So we're going to talk to Corey McGowan, who's based in the beautiful mountains of Minakami in Japan with his wife and two sons. He's been a Japan resident for years and has spent decades in education and people development. He's worked with management across all levels and uh recently he decided to get away from the rat race of the city and move to outside Tokyo in the mountains where he sees himself as doing transformation work and doing a lot of rural revitalization as well so really really interesting transformation work that Corey's doing more about this right after this break Okay, so let's get this going. Uh, we have with us, as I just mentioned before the break, Corey McGowan. Corey, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Hey, Vinay. It's really nice to see you, and thanks for having me. And you're sitting in the beautiful outdoors. I, is that a stream or a river behind you? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm lucky enough to be sitting in my front yard, and that borders actually the Tonegawa River, which is the second longest river in Japan. Wow. Okay, so... Yeah. So that, that is the present, but what I want to do is dial, you hit the rewind button and I would love okay. to hear the chronology of, and the story of Corey and how did he end up sitting here? Tell us, yeah. tell our listeners. Yeah. Um, well, if I really went back to kind of part of why I ended up here is growing up um, with a father who had a passion for the outdoors and shared that with us. So had the the uh, good fortune and privilege to spend a lot of time in the outdoors as a kid. I grew up in a, an area, not on a river, but similar to this, like a house that my dad built with his friends. And that was in a pretty rural area. Uh, I'm from the Northeast of the U S and got to live on both coasts and have been on kind of a lot of adventures, both in the U S and around the world. I've probably lived about half my life outside of America up until now. Wow. Uh, and I've been in Japan since 1999, and I've been in this area called Minakami, which is about 160 kilometers outside of Tokyo for about four years now. So wow. it's a, a very abbreviated version, but that's kind of, yeah, how I, how I ended up here. That is cool. So where, where was home in the northeast part of the U.S.? What, what part of? So I was born about 45 minutes outside of Boston. Kind of okay. the middle of Ma middle of Massachusetts, uh, but from about when I was in um, 
junior high school, uh, we had a, like a beach home in Maine and my parents moved up to Maine. So I usually tell people I'm from Maine because I find it more interesting than Massachusetts. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> for people that don't know, it's all the way in the Northeast on the border of Canada, you know, a lot of, a lot of wild places, a lot of beautiful coasts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I know the area well. I, I went to school and I lived in New Hampshire. So mm-hmm. just between yeah. uh, Maine and Massachusetts right there. Yeah. Great. So so really uh, interesting journey. And I know you and I, we did, our, we spent a lar- large part of our careers in uh, learning and development, organization development, mm-hmm. HR and yeah. stuff like that. So what yeah. made you get into that field of study and yeah. profession, I should say, more? Yeah. Yeah. So again, kind of going a little bit further back than that, like I spent basically all my twenties kind of adventuring and traveling and, and really living for that. And it wasn't until I came to Japan that I started to uh, get into a bit more of a professional career. Uh, and I did a lot of things that uh, a lot of foreigners do here. I was an English teacher. I was a recruiter. Um, but where my path started to differentiate a bit was when I joined uh, an organization called Kidzania, which is an edutainment theme park. Uh, it's a franchise out of Mexico, but the one in Tokyo is the first one, first global location outside of Mexico. And in my work there, like I, I joined as a um, kind of a trainer to support the staff to be able to do some of their work in English and quickly got kind of bored with that and started crafting my own work around creating programs for kids to be doing activities in English, even though they didn't speak English. So it was this really interesting uh, experiment around kind of language education combined with super interesting activities. In the park, kids get to like do these different jobs. So like be a pizza chef or be a policeman or woman or whatever. and I quickly moved into a kind of a director level role as the first, first non-Japanese director in the company. And I got to witness up close and personal uh, just what a mess management could be mm-hmm. and kind of typical stuff that you hear about in Japan of like male, um, male leaders screaming at women leaders and just kind of like abusive level stuff and, and just thinking like, um, man, why does this happen? You know, what's, right. what, what causes this type of quote unquote leadership, um, this, this style of management and started to just get a bit interested in organizational development. Um, my father was actually an OD consultant for most of his life. So oh, uh, really, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's just occurred to me recently that I'm kind of second generation in this. Um, but unfortunately we lost him before I really got to talk to him much about it. So, um, so that got me interested in it. And then I actually found, uh, an OD role. I got to move on from Kidzania and got to work in OD there. Um, and that was really interesting because it was a very different environment. Uh, it was a place called the Tokyo American club. And that's right. a, a 90 year old, uh, international social and members club. Uh, with all its kind of interesting management stuff itself. Uh, And through that, I I came across coaching. And coaching was something kind of more than anything else in my career that resonated with me really quickly um, that I got to do at a, you know, at the director level internally, and then with some heads of uh, nonprofit organizations in Tokyo. 
Then we made the move out here and I took a really big left turn and started running an outdoor and adventure company here in Minakami. It was my first C-level role managing a pretty um, complex organization. Uh, and COVID had its way with that. <laughs> yeah, yes. Along, along, sure. with, um, along with some other kind of management stuff that came up that was actually really, really challenging kind of knocked me on my ass, kind of had me lose kind of confidence in a lot of ways. Um, and then through working with my own coach, I started to kind of get back on my feet and realize that the coaching thing is what I wanted to do and, and to run my own practice and business. And so I've been doing that for about a year and a half now. Wow. There's so much to unpack in what you've just said. <laughs> uh, I, I just made a couple of notes that I want to go back to. Uh, yeah. Your mind. But, but, there's a very basic question as you started the journey. Uh, what yeah. brought you to Japan? I know you said when you came here, you started the classic English teacher. But what was it that yeah. uh, of all the places in the world that you could have ended up with? Yeah. What brought you to Japan? Yeah. Well, you know, all my travel and, and adventures up until then had been more kind of in developing countries. And that's always been what interested me the most. Uh, but a, a really close friend of mine had been in Tokyo for a couple of years and came back and said, yeah, I'm going back to work on my Japanese and I found this Japanese school outside of Tokyo and just come with me. So it was it was a whim. It was a curiosity. I came with a backpack and a surfboard and thought I'd be here for a few months um, learning some Japanese because I'm my degree in, in university is in French and Spanish. So languages are things that I've always been interested in. Uh, and yeah, within probably within less than two months, it was, well, now I have no money and, <laughs> and I'm not ready to leave. So, um, so yeah, the, a job came up actually within the same school where I was studying, uh, Japanese and it stuck. Yeah. It's, it's stuck in terms of, and I think probably what, what's made the country stick for me the most is just the, the people that I've met and the relationships that I've formed with people. Uh, there's just really something resonant for me about how Japanese people relate to each other and how kind and, and open they can be. Uh, so yeah, that's yeah. so you're the you're the third or fourth guest that we've had on this podcast who's got similar journeys to you. Yeah, they they, they go to Japan just for and say there yeah, we're going to spend a few months there, and 30 years later or 25 years later they're still there. Yeah, so there must yeah, be yeah. something in the water. I'm guessing. Well, and can I ask there, Vinay, I'm, I'm going to guess that all those people that you're talking about are men. Is that true? That is true. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what I, would, what I would love to have other people hear and something that I personally am curious about is a foreign woman that's lived here for a long time, because that can be really, I think it can be very different than it is for the, the male experience here. Um, and so I would, I would love to have that perspective be part of uh, what you share on this platform uh, as well. So it's so very interesting. Uh, so I, I know foreign women who moved to Japan and have been there 10 years, 15 years as well. I yeah. just haven't had yeah. them on my podcast. Now, cool. you're, now I'm cool. making yeah. a mental note to have uh, yeah. a couple of them on my podcast as well to get that yeah. perspective. But yeah, but, yeah. yeah. It, and it also comes back to what you said, right? When you started working why are those male executives yelling at the female executives yeah. and the female staff? Yeah. It is, uh, yeah. or it used to be, and I hope it's changing, uh, a very, very male-dominated society yeah. uh, uh, as well. Yeah. 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 But, but uh, so, so then let's come to 
your work at, in, in OD. And so you started doing projects, designing programs and getting into OD. Uh, and it, it's awesome. I mean, second generation OD, you're the first person I know who's <laughs> followed in uh, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Well, I remember, I remember clearly, like when I was younger, probably like high school age, just thinking like, I have no idea what my dad does. Right? Like, none of it makes any sense to me. Um, but, but, but it's interesting, and, right? Because even today, if you tell people I'm an OD consultant, half, half the people, yeah. 90% of them will have no clue what we do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if you encountered that. Yeah. Well, and I tell you what I was cognizant of was that my dad worked in leadership and he helped to run a, uh, a national leadership conference actually in New Hampshire every year. And it was one of the, the favorite, his favorite things to do throughout the year. And uh, so that I knew. And one of the things that's been um, intriguing to me on my coaching journey is that kind of the idea of uh, leaders as coaches and coaches as leaders. And so kind of like seeing myself in a coaching role is like not only as a coach, but also a leader, right? And, and what does that mean? And, and how do I define that? And how do I support leaders in seeing themselves as coaches as well? So that's, that's a kind of a, a connection there that I've, I've formed as well. Right. So I'm going to come to your uh, left turn into the adventure side in, in a little bit. But before that, when you, yeah. you just triggered a thought, the leaders as coaches and coaches as leaders, how does that yeah. resonate, the whole concept of uh, leaders as coaches in, in a culture like Japan with organizations where I mm. uh, would love yeah. to get your perspective on that? Yeah, I love that question, man. It's so interesting. Like, I mean, just the word coach around the world. Exactly. <laughs> You'd ask 100 people and everyone, and, you know, that's even, even if you removed everyone that said something about athletics, you know, even if it was about kind of business or leadership coaching, people would have different responses. But my experience with Japanese people, uh, Japanese leaders here, is that it really tends to fall into like the advisor realm, right? Like a coach kind of tells you how to do things, right? And kind of uh, it's more like an advisor mentor type role. Um, and same with leaders is like, that's what you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to tell your team what to do and they're supposed to do it. Um, so that's, that's the kind of the similarity I see and, and the real, the opportunity, but also what makes it challenging. Like so many of the, I'd say probably 90 to 95% of the clients that I work with here, I've never worked with a coach before. So in, in what often happens when I'm working with Japanese clients is within, you know, a couple of weeks to a couple of months I've worked together and ask them for some feedback. They say, you know, I thought, I thought you were going to tell me what to do. You know, I thought this was going to be like a training and there was going to be lectures. And quickly I learned that like you, you don't, right. You keep, you keep bringing it back to me where I can kind of um, try things myself, express my own potential myself and, or you, you know, sometimes just leave me hanging until I can come up with something. Right. And so that's the, that's what I've seen in, in my work so far in Japan. Yeah, I hope nobody told you. So because you do that, I feel cheated that you're not giving me all the answers. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> well, fortunately, yeah. Japanese people aren't usually that direct. So That's they, true. That is they true. may be thinking it, but they probably wouldn't tell me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so what, you're, what I'm hearing you say is that means there is a, there's an increased recognition of leader as a coach and people trying to play that role. Would that be accurate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
uh, I think there's a there's an understanding of the value of a coaching approach, and then how to bring that into a management style is something that is is interesting to the, at least the leaders that I'm talking to here. And then it also can become, well, what's the right framework? How exactly do I do that? And of course, there are frameworks and approaches, but the thing that I'm more interested in is like, how is the leader developing that approach based on the work that they're doing? You know, right. being in their own work with me as a coach, like, well, what, what do you need to develop yourself to be able to work with your team uh, the way that you want to? Um, and not that, again, not that there's anything wrong with the framework, but first of all, uh, what is it for? Like mm. what, you know, what's behind you wanting to take this approach and yeah. Right. So do you see that, uh, this thinking of themselves as a coach is more prevalent with leaders coming in from mature, uh, companies, uh, Japanese companies that have gone global or multinationals? What about the traditional Japanese companies? Are, are they adopting it? Or is there a, a specific segment that is yeah. more open to it? Yeah, uh, I have not really worked with any just domestic Japanese companies and those types right. of clients. Pretty much everyone that I work with um, is either part of a multinational or has had time working overseas, you know, working in, cause I'm, as of right now, I'm still only coaching in English. I'm, I speak Japanese, but I'm not coaching in Japanese yet. Um, so I, I can't really speak to like a purely domestic organization. And what I, what I can say that I think is pretty true is that those types of companies are still not really investing in much coaching training. Right. Yes. But coaching much, much less. Yeah. So I think there's plenty of room for it to grow uh, as well, right? Yeah. Because that's the yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, classical thing. I mean, my, my experience of having traveled to Japan and working with clients is just like you. It's the multinationals or the Japanese who've gone and lived overseas, come back and found value yeah. in it. You're listening to the Shiny Happy People podcast. Subscribe to us on your favorite platforms. This podcast is sponsored by C2COD, your organizational development consulting partner, bringing people and strategy together. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook using the handle at C2COD and get updates on our upcoming episodes. Okay, yeah. so, so you invested in, your, in learning uh, about coaching yourself. You got yourself a coach. And you said, that is for me. And then you said that you moved out of Tokyo and mm -hmm. into Minakami uh, as yep. well. And, and that was to go work for an organization there? Or was it just, is, uh, had you already made the decision to no. go on your own? Yeah, so I moved here while I was still working in Tokyo. So I actually got to spend a year commuting by bullet train. That was kind of fun. Um, but the move out here was... Uh, mainly initiated by getting to use a friend of ours house out here off and on for a couple of years. And then just one day making the, 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 doing the, doing the math and saying, I could, we could live out here and I could keep the stability of my job. Um, and my wife in a moment of weakness somehow agreed with that because she's not a, she's not a country girl at all. She is Japanese, but she's from, not from Tokyo, but from basically a suburb of Tokyo. 
Um, so the kind of the biggest impetus for me, I mean, other than like wanting to be in a place like this again, like where I grew up and right. having been, you know, 15 years in Tokyo, which is an amazing city if you want to live in a city, um, but wanting to get out, but also my sons at the time were uh, still in elementary school and there was just this, this idea of getting them to be around community, you know, mm. particularly in a rural community and to understand the value of that. And so that was, that was the impetus, the move and all that was based on that. And that I got to keep, uh, keep the stability of my work in Tokyo. Um, and then the, when the outdoor company opportunity came up, it was like, oh, yeah, it's like no brainer. You know, this is like dream come true. And, uh, and uh, it wasn't, unfortunately it wasn't, uh, wasn't the case, but it was also a really critical juncture. Like, it was really critical. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be sitting here the way that I am right now. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, the, the, there were, it was kind of a lot of painful learning experiences, but really experiences that allow me to transform in my own way. And that's the work that I aim to do with my clients. Right. So right. Um, I can say in a, in a genuine way that I've, I've been through some rough stuff in that way. And I can help me to support people with that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, so it's, it's sort of interesting because the pandemic made so many of us go into the path of uh, entrepreneurship, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and discover something that um, we needed to do. But then now we, a lot of people discovered that they love to do that. And I think yeah. you're one of those as well. So, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I've, I've never considered myself an entrepreneur. That's kind of the funny part of it is just like, um, I also never considered myself like a company guy, right? So um, this has been an interesting exploration. Like my, my, what I love about this is getting to work with people. Um, and to, it's like such a privilege to um, support people in the things that they want to create. And the business side of it is it like, whoa, <laughs> this is, uh, you know, finding the clients and developing the business and doing that on the day to day has been like a, a pretty wild learning curve. Well, Corey, whether you like it or not, you just defined yourself as an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're, you're there, my friend. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, you, so you live there and you said there was all this adventure and outdoor mm -hmm. uh, uh learning training and, and i'm guessing you're using some of the outdoor stuff to do your coaching conversations and uh, there's a company in the uk that does coaching uh coaching walks as they call it right mm -hmm. it's a walk yeah. and talk type of thing yeah, uh, I, yeah. I don't know if, if you started to experiment with those kinds of things or yeah yep a little bit um i i got to take a group up um there's a mountain nearby here called Tanigawa and it's actually uh, the one thing it's famous for is for being the most deadly mountain in the world. Um, and that's mainly because the, the geography of it is such that there are a lot of avalanches and landslides and whatever, but it's actually, it's not that dangerous just to climb up the normal way that people go. So I took a small group up there and it was, it was really interesting to have coaching conversations with them. This was, this was around, um, it was, a, it was a mental health um, day. And so right. I get to have people share stories of 
people in their lives that have had mental health challenges and whatever. So to have people in an outdoor environment, have the challenge of them kind of climbing up a, a relatively challenging mountain and stopping and having these coaching conversations was, was really beautiful. Mm. So um, that's more of the work I will be doing. I have a, a program that brings um, teams of leaders out into Minakami to do um, a couple of, a couple of overnights here. Um, Sorry, my we have a um, I don't know if you can hear that or not, but yeah. we have a, we have a we have a new puppy. Ah, <laughs> okay. He, he just came home with my wife, and he's uh, making a little bit of excited noise in the background. So that is hopefully great. That's cool. not no worries. Anything. No, no, um, no. But yeah, that's that's the um, that's the work that I will be doing more of this year, and I'm really excited about. And an important part of that model also is partnering with the local community here. So, you know, local venues, local guiding companies, local uh, food providers, that type of thing. So that it's really my work in support of uh, Minakami and, and the other businesses that are running here. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very passionate and, and excited about that type of work. That is great. And, and you're seeing more and more people sign up for these things, get interested in it, because I, my understanding is, and, and it's, I see this here in India as well, there's a lot more, the pandemic has brought three themes that I see. One is an overall focus on health and fitness. Mm -hmm. The second yeah. is mental health, specifically, mm -hmm. everybody's concerned. Yeah. And the third is getting outdoors, right? Mm -hmm. That there was, yeah. let's reconnect with the outdoors. So would that be the same, yeah. more people wanting to do? Yeah, I mean, let's see. One of the most, it's kind of a strange way to say it, but one of the most helpful things about the pandemic in Japan is it has pushed forward the way people work by probably a decade or more. Hmm. You know, Japan has always been a bit behind in um, flexibility of working and w remote working. And it, so it's kind of pushed all this stuff really forward. And so one of the, the bigger movements here is people who are considering uh, places to live outside of big metropolises. So um, I would, I would kind of add that as one of the categories for Japan. And so people being able to work more remotely, live in areas like this, that, you know, it's only an hour shot into Tokyo station from here. So um, having people like that come and be part of the community. And then, yes, there is like this big push, like camping has exploded in Japan over the past two years. Right. It was, it was relatively popular anyways, but now like with people being concerned about being in hotels and whatnot, the other, the other really big thing here is glamping. Are you familiar with glamping? Yeah. 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 The, the uh, <laughs> luxurious camping. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> basically. So, um, yeah, we've got a, we've got one really cool glamping place here and that's the venue that I partner with to bring teams out to. And they've got these really funky, um, insulated tents that can be used year round. Um, so having people be out there and, you know, take them into the outdoors, come back. And like a, a lot of the, the kind of the theme of the work that I do is around campfires, right? So gathering around campfires and the discussions that can happen there. Uh, so yeah, seeing, seeing a lot going in that direction. And I think as things open up over the next six months, we'll see even more of that. So that means you must also probably be getting a lot of new name neighbors coming into Minakami, right? People moving in and stuff. Uh, there's, there's a pretty good amount of construction going on. Yes, um, I imagine. The, 
the the Japanese countryside can be a little bit tricky uh, because of depopulation. There tends to be a lot of open properties and abandoned houses. And in mm. Japan, we call them akia. Akia just means open, so like open open homes. But there's a lot of bureaucracy behind them that makes it quite challenging just to buy them and renovate them. So there's not quite as much movement as you'd think. And also, real estate here is. It's not really an investment. You're probably not going to see the value of property in these type of areas really increase much, yeah. um, unless it's like super close to a Shinkansen station, a bullet train station, or something like that. Um, so it's not happening that fast, but it's definitely happening. In a way, if it, if it's a secret, it's good because the space won't get ruined right. with with lots of people, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and and yeah. I know uh, you know because you and I have met, and we so I sort of follow you on social media, and I know you you started to do something around uh, a men's group or discover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you posting something about bears, uh, <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff. I, I, I'm just trying yeah. to remember what it was, but. What was all that about? Was this just part of something you were trying out? Or, or is that the group that you took up the mountain? Uh, yeah, that was different. So let's see, there's a, probably a couple different pieces to that. One, um, you'll see me on LinkedIn as Bear Dancer. and That's right, that, Bear Dancer. Yeah, yeah. That, that refers to um, a meeting that I had with a bear here about a year and a half ago. Um, <laughs> I, call it, I call it a meeting or a, or a dance slightly, but actually I was... I was in the hospital for a week, um, but I don't refer to it as a bear attack or a mauling because what I've learned through that happening is that bears are uh, really endangered in Japan. Um, right. And there's very little regulation about how often they're killed. Um, and I've um, been supporting an organization that protects bears and protects forests so that bears have a habitat to live in. So I use very careful language around that because it was really I surprised a bear in a way that I shouldn't have because I wasn't making enough noise when I went into a, a natural environment, whatever. So that's, that's that. Um, I have, um, I have been venturing into men's work and this kind of ties back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Like, what is it like to be a man here and not just the leader, but you know, a man in general, like can be very challenging for men to actually have an opportunity to express their emotions or to even think that it's okay to express their emotions. And that can come up in a lot of, a lot of really challenging ways. There's, there's an extremely high uh, rate of suicide. Suicide, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's just a curiosity. Like the, the curiosity mainly came from the fact that I've had a lot of relationships with men in my life that are, uh, loving and positive and meaningful and I want to figure out so how has that happened for me and how can I support other men in having that um, so I've got a, a group called Keaki that I'll be starting um, probably in the next month or so which will be a virtual gathering of eight men in Japan I really want to focus on men in Japan and it will be a mix of both Japanese and non-Japanese and I'll, I'll run it mostly in English with with a little bit of Japanese support um, and leading up to that, I've been interviewing men in Japan that I know to kind of learn more about what would support them and what, what, you know, what is their experience of being a man in Japan like versus being in other countries. And, and uh, it's, been, it's been really interested and interesting, and I'm, I'm excited to start that. Well, that, that actually sounds really interesting. And, and there's probably 
lots of room for some really uh, significant and important research there, right, as well, mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of data. Because I always say there's mostly anecdotal information and yeah. what people uh, talk about. But I, I don't know yeah. if that's something that you're going to collect or not, not because that's that would be great. And that will, of course, uh, build on to your OD practice because <laughs> uh, mm. that's sort of data-driven as well. I, I don't know mm-hmm. if you're thinking about it. I haven't been thinking about that. And if there's anyone listening that interests them about that, because that's not really my, my thing. I'm not, I'm not really a researcher, but I think it would like, could really have a positive impact in Japan. And it's something that uh, would be great to learn more about. So uh, yeah, I think that's a great point and a great opportunity. Yeah. And I'm also guessing that given the, for lack of a better word, the sensitive nature of the conversations and uh, focusing on this, a lot of the work will come through referrals and references and stuff, right? Yeah. It's not, yeah. you're going to go and say, come bear your soul on this wall. Yeah. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, just like the idea of kind of any man presenting that he might not be okay. Yeah. And like, I, that's, I find that in myself, like the more work that I do on myself, the more support that I get through my own coaching, through therapy, that kind of thing. It's like, Jesus, this is true for me too. Like, and I, I grew up with a dad who was super emotionally, you know, um, open and, and really invited me to be open. And still it's just like, Jesus, it's hard for me to say, ask for what I want or say when I'm not okay. And so, you know, providing guys a place where that's an okay conversation to have is I think is really important. Yeah. And, and the general rule, right. If, if the men themselves are not okay, they're probably not going to create a great safe space for women as well. Right. Mm. It, it, yeah. mm. There's this, what, what is that uh, Gandhi? If it's to be, it starts with me. Mm. Right. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. that's, so there's potentially a huge cultural shift that will happen as yeah. a result of this, at least for the people who yeah. get involved in this kind of work. As yeah. well. So, yeah, so where do you see this? Where do you see the work that you're doing be, go to in the next couple of years? What, what's your yeah. aspiration? Um, vision? So one of the things I'm, I'm more and more interested in is the idea of uh, rural revitalization in Japan. And so coaching is kind of like my passion and my work and something that I'll continue to explore, particularly around leadership transformation for individuals and for teams. And I really want to make sure that that has an impact in Japan. And so kind of using networks from both to look at what's happening around the country in places like where I live, see what are people doing that's working and how can we do more of that? How can we learn from each other? Um, and so kind of each of those things being a platform to support each other, you know, doing, doing more of that kind of work, hopefully supporting um, how I get to do coaching and support people through that work, but also the, having a network of leaders and companies that I work with, be able to look because that, you know, Japanese government is, just can be very slow and moving on these types of things. And so looking at the business sector, particularly these small businesses, people doing really cool stuff like breweries and cafes and locally sourced food and all that, that is um, existing in these pockets around Japan and getting 
those types of businesses together to start to say like, Hey, we want to do this more quickly. Right. Mm. Kind of, I personally have this growing sense of urgency. Like we need to move on this stuff. Like let's, let's make this stuff happen. Um, within within japan uh, because it's changing really quickly like in, just in this area that i live in from next month is a new school year all of the junior high schools in this area are going into one junior high school so that's like oh, wow four they're merging them all yeah into one. yeah and next year it's elementary schools so what happens in those areas where the people live where the old schools are and what happens with the schools and right. so this this stuff is it's happening it's happening quite quickly so I have a just kind of a growing sense of urgency of, of how we can how we can start to make some changes. It's also, I'm just thinking, what happens to all that infrastructure that was created for those other smaller schools? Yeah. And now you've yeah. got to expand into one big one. It's just mm-hmm. going to strain that whatever neighborhood that you're going that that's yep. going to be in yeah. as well. So how did your kids adjust to being out in the countryside? And you said your wife wasn't really a country girl. Is she now one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny that I mentioned the, the puppy that we have, but having a dog has been a big part of it. Um, you know, getting her walking every day. And, and uh, it's been, she was, uh, she was in her own uh, professional role when, when we were still in Tokyo and she decided that she would give that up to focus a bit more on being around the home and being with the boys. And so overall, that's gone really well. Um, she's blended in with the, the community here. Um, we, get, uh, we get fresh vegetables put on our doorstep on a regular basis from the local farmers and friends nice. that we have in the neighborhood. And she loves that. Um, and the boys were uh, let's see, I think they were like eight and 11 when we moved out here. So it was just at the cusp of like, yeah, everything is still awesome. It doesn't matter that I'm leaving all my friends behind in Tokyo, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's something new and exciting. Um, and moving into small schools has been cool because it's just like 30 kids in their class that they get to be with, you know, that's the whole grade. Um, and then all the, the kind of the fun outdoor stuff that we get to do as well has been really fun. So yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been great and it's been very um, you know, the getting them into community has exceeded kind of what my expectations were around that, um, meaning that it happened quite smoothly. We're quite mm-hmm. welcomed into this community. Rural Japanese communities are known for kind of being closed at times, but because of the outdoor scene here, there have been non-Japanese people living in this community for over 40 years. Right. So it's a, a pretty easy community to, to come into and to be welcomed into. No, I think your t- timing is everything. And like what you said, if I think the story would have been very different had you had two teenagers to deal yeah. with. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. But yeah. that is any regrets leaving the corporate world? Um, how quickly can I say no? <laughs> <laughs> you, you just did. You just did. <laughs> um, no, the only thing that I that I do miss about that is I, I really have had the opportunity to work with wonderful people, you know, and I've have I have a lot of relationships. Every organization that I've worked in in Japan, I'm pretty much in touch with multiple people from those organizations. 
So um, that's a, a part of it that I really appreciated. And again, like wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for the things that I learned, the opportunities that I had and all that. So very high level of appreciation and um, wouldn't be upset if I never had to wear a suit and tie again for the rest of my <laughs> life. Well, we'll see. We'll see yeah. if that happens or not. I, I'm sure you have um, mothballed all of them somewhere uh, <laughs> in the back of your house. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to burn them in a bonfire when we moved out here, but um, I decided to hold off for a little while. No, no, so no. Don't do that. still have access <laughs> just in case. Yeah, exactly. No, but this, yeah. this is really cool. And you haven't thought of getting international audiences, people from outside Japan coming in. Of course, the pandemic, travel restrictions, but as they yeah. ease up, I think there might even be an opportunity for people to come and explore. Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's the case. Uh, in particular, the kind of my main program that I run with leadership teams called Campfires and Co-Creation is, I think it lends itself very well to companies coming to do that here, you know, right. coming particularly like, New Zealand, Australia, APAC is is pretty easy access to Japan. And Japan has such a strong brand for people wanting to come here and visit anyways. So um, yeah, I, I think that's going to happen. That was kind of like a far off dream. And I'm, I'm kind of getting the, the feeling that that may happen sooner than, than I expected. Well, it was a far off, it was a very distant dream a year ago. Hopefully things are now easing up. I think Japan's opened yeah. up, right? They're allowing a limited number of... Yeah visitors yep. international visitors every day or something yeah that's right that's yeah. right well, yeah. hopefully yeah. I, i'm i am waiting for it to open up fully i better come over to japan i uh, would love to catch up with you and of course you and i know a lot of common yes. people there so yeah there's lots yeah, of looking forward to that yeah uh, clients friends that i need to catch up on and get some of these uh, uh japanese whiskey taken care of as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> nice so Corey I mean the podcast is shiny happy people and one of the yep. things that we often ask is uh, two questions around it mm-hmm. so what is it that you in during the last couple of years or what are you right now reading watching listening to mm-hmm that you are learning from? Because I think all yeah. coaches, all OD practitioners, we are always yeah. constant learners. So what's your source of knowledge? Yeah, That's my yeah. first, and I'll come to the second one after you answer this one. Okay. Uh, every Monday morning, when I wake up and do kind of my morning routine, I listen to a podcast by a guy named uh, Michael Mead. Yeah. Uh, and he is really an expert in kind of myth and mythology and stories from different cultures around the world. Um, and I'm forgetting the name of the podcast right now, but if you look up Michael Mead, you'll find it. Um, and it's really, it's like 25 to 30 minutes. Um, but he brings different story, different powerful poetry and stuff into the current context of you know, the war and the pandemic and, you know, systemic um, issues that, that have been coming up. And it, he really helps to make sense of it and to give not necessarily optimism, but mm. some kind of sense making like, hey, in some ways we've been here before. And this is what different myth and story tells us as a way to make sense of it. So I find myself 
re-listening to issues of that regularly. I, I'll pull quotes um, from it often in my own writing because I find it so inspiring. So right. uh, that's, that's something that I'd really recommend to people. Great. It's uh, my producer just messaged me. It's called the Living Myth Podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really so, recommend it. So good. I'm glad you're listening to podcasts. That That's good. Mm. Uh, and are you reading anything right now? Are you? Let's see. Um, I did just start reading uh, a book called For the Love of Men. And so this is related to the men's work that I'm starting to get into. Um, and I try not to recommend books when I haven't read them fully, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but what I've read so far uh, is really powerful. And one of the most powerful concepts that I've gotten from it so far is that in all the research that this woman uh, did in writing the book was that men are telling her that what they find most challenging in being a man is other men yeah. because one of the one of the contrasts for men and women is that um people never question a woman's womanhood right like like you're not woman enough but yeah, for men yeah. that's kind of this this constant thing of like continually having to prove that you're a man in some way and that you kind of never fully arrive it's just like yes that's that's uh it, it's true really right man. uh there's so many be a man all right, prove mm -hmm. your manhood. Mm -hmm. Right, there's so many mm -hmm. of those expressions yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that are out there. Yeah, but but that's a very interesting thought. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'll circle back to you once you finish reading the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And my other question is going to be: since the podcast is shiny happy people, what what do you yeah. do to stay happy, stay positive? Because we all have our yeah. ups and downs. What what's yeah. your secret? What's your yeah recipe? For positivity. Well, um, I don't mean to uh, to blow up your podcast here, Vinay, but um, I have just in the past couple of weeks. So we lost we lost a dog that that's was right. a really important part of our family, and what that's helped me to realize again is actually the power of sadness. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've had a lot of I've had a lot of grief in my life, a lot of loss in my life, and am quite practiced at grief, and have just realized like the power in um, sadness and the way it can connect, connect us to our hearts, connect us to opening to love, connect us to like the soul of the world is, is really important. And I would say that it's not unconnected to being happy oh, yeah. because if you can't experience, um, if you can't experience that sadness and, and the relief that it allows, it's very happy. It's very hard to be in a place of kind of true happiness. So um, that's kind of the, I don't know, uh, a shift that I've gone through, a, a kind of a re-realization over the past few weeks as I've dealt with some, some grief and loss. No, I, I think that's a very, very fair, valid point because uh, you've got to be in the moment for in, in times of grief and all through that in order to move forward into any sense of happiness, right? Because it comes from yeah. a place of being centered, uh, at least yeah. that's what I, I, I like to think. No, but this has been yeah. great, Corey. This, thank you so much for making time for this podcast. And uh, it's great to see you sitting out in the outdoors. Yeah, and what? I would, you know, I just like to um, like just to make an open invitation to anyone that's coming to Japan. 
please, please let me know if you want to come to Minakami. We have world-class powder to ski in. We have incredible rapids and just real, real wild wildlife um, just an hour away from Tokyo. So please hit me up if you come out here. Be careful with that invite. You, you'll have a crowd out there. <laughs> you might have to, people might have to take a number. <laughs> What's yeah, the weather like that. right now? It's uh, it gets chilly in the evening still. Uh, overnight last night it was probably minus two Celsius. So okay. the winter's winter's still around a little bit, but daytime it's been getting up to like fifteen or eighteen. So it feels oh, really nice. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Excellent, my friend. Thank you so much, Corey. This has been a yeah. real pleasure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really great. Yeah, thank you. Okay, interesting conversation. So I hope you all figured out what Baird Ramsar was all about. Uh, it, you know, what I really like about my conversation with Corey, and he and I met several years ago in Tokyo. We tried to do some work together. And like so many others during the pandemic, lots of people have had transformative events. And it's nice to see Corey himself going through his personal transformation and then working with others in this work. Hope you enjoyed this episode, folks. Love to get your feedback. Reach out. And uh, it's a wrap. Over and out.